Good morning. Well, I'm so glad to be with you. It's a joy for me every time I get to come to Grace Mosaic. And uh, for those of you that haven't met me, I'm one of the pastors in this Grace DC family um, at the Grace Downtown Congregation. But we are uh, striving to be one family. So anytime uh, I can come and be with a larger family, I'm just excited. And I'll bring word back uh, to our service tonight as we're meeting um, in Chinatown. But um, I know you've been hanging out in the book of Genesis. And um, I'm going to take you to the New Testament today. But really carry some of the same themes. Russ asked if I would come and talk a little bit about belief and unbelief. And so my mind was drawn to um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is a very uh, famous chapter in the Bible on faith. Not too long ago, I was um, surfing on CNN's belief blog. I don't know, has anybody ever gone to the belief blog before? Okay, yeah. And, uh, and at that time, there was an article on young Latinos that were leaving the Catholic Church. Uh, those that were walking away from the faith. And it was really just sort of another illustration of this thing that's been happening where folks will identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. Uh, And you may know many, many people. You may be in that category this morning. You would say, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Um, And so there's a growing question about what qualifies as faith anyway. It was sort of funny, I went back to that site this morning, and they have a link that says Faith Now. And I hit it, and I got this error message that said, sorry, but you're looking for something that isn't here. (laughs) And I thought, that's probably, you know, a good uh, description of what's happening in general. Now, I think one of the reasons that people lose their faith or you never find faith is when you base faith, the reality of it, on one thing, okay? When your lens or your angle for understanding faith is one thing. For instance, maybe um, your faith is based upon your quality of life. So there's a certain quality of life you would expect a good God to deliver, and if he doesn't deliver that, then you would lose faith or never get faith. Another one might be your experience in the faith community. Maybe your story is, I I felt I got hurt in the church. I experienced real disappointment in the church. And so the result is actually a losing of faith because of that experience is gone. And so the community is gone. Or it might be your individual feelings that you've had. At one point in your life, you had feelings where you felt close to God. And as the old song goes, you lost that loving feeling. And now you lost your faith with it because it was really bound to that feeling. Or lastly, it might be that faith for you meant things tied together very neat in a system. And as that system began to get exploded a little bit, you found your faith going away. All of those are illustrations to say if you base your faith on one thing, if you basically see it just through one lens, you're going to be more prone to lose faith and to not or never find it in the first place. So in Hebrews chapter 11 here, many times people come to this as a definition for faith. What is faith? 
But it's really less of a definition and more of a description of what faith looks like, characteristics of faith. And so that's what I want to put before you to consider this morning. How are you characterizing, how would you recognize faith in your own life? Okay? And there's four things um, that I'm going to give you, and that may shock you if you've heard me preach, because, and they're not alliterated. So already I'm trying to keep you on your toes. I want to talk about the personal nature of faith, the gracious nature of faith, the willing nature of faith, and the waiting nature of faith. So, the personal nature of faith. The first thing we have to understand when we think about belief and unbelief and faith is faith is based on a person. Now, whenever I try to, uh, whenever I treat my wife and kids as if they're a problem to be solved, it not only backfires, right? It not only backfires, but I also don't succeed in getting to know them, to know what's going on. Because people aren't data, right? We can extract data and facts and things from people, but you, know, you can't reduce them to data. And the same thing is true with God. God is not data. God is a person. Um, you know, that is actually a small but really big step. This room is filled with persons. Some are young, some are older, some are black, some are white, right? Different sorts of persons. But all of us are persons. So why would we think that God is impersonal? Why would we think God is a force? Why would we think God is just a thing up there? It wouldn't make any sense that an impersonal being would create personal beings. And so we're actually the greatest clue to what God is like. In fact, coming to know God is not, like coming, not unlike coming to know another person. I mean, the same things are involved in many ways. So if you're approaching God not like you would another person, you're going to run into trouble. So first of all, God, this idea, is a personal God, and this is why he became a person. In other religions and other faiths, it's not necessary for God to become a person because God is impersonal. And so you have teachings and thoughts and philosophies. But the Christian faith has always said, no, because God is a person, he had to come as a person. And so the scripture would say that Jesus Christ is the very person of God come in the flesh. He is the substance, the real essence of God. The book of Hebrews starts that way. It says he is the shining, he is the radiance of God. The beauty and the presence of God would come to us in the person of Christ. And you know that it's also impossible to get to know someone, a person, apart from trust. You really can't get to know people apart from trust. And we're always in this thing where we're having to trust people. That's part of the dance of getting to know people, right? The more you trust them, the more you get to know them. And so we have to begin to think about how does someone come to actually trust the person of God? Now, I can learn something about you by just observing you. You know, I could sit back in the corner and sort of watch you and learn something about you. But it's not until you and I sit down and you reveal yourself to me that I'm going to get to know who you are. And that's why the Christian faith has always been a religion of revelation. God must speak or we won't get to know him. We live in what's called, one person has said, a God-to-me culture, where people say God-to-me is like this. 
God to me is like this. God to me is like that. But what we have to realize is for many of us, God ends up being just a perfected version of ourselves, just like sort of a superpower version of ourselves. And, you know, what, what would it be like if I came up to you and said, you know, let's start our relationship this way. I'm going to tell you who I think you are. And then I'm going to ask you to conform into who I think you are. We, we would never spend time with that person, but we do this with God all the time, right? We say, this is who you're going to be. I, I need you to be compassionate. I need you to be loving or in some face. I need you to be wrathful, whatever it is. And this is who you'll be. And if you're not that, then I won't have you. That doesn't make sense. And so in the Christian faith, it's a religion of revelation. And the way that happens, the Bible says, by word and spirit. God comes in the flesh. People write about that coming. And then God's spirit comes, and he helps you understand that. That's why every Sunday, Russ spends time opening up this word, because he wants you to know who God is. We could stand up here every week and just sort of like I could tell you, you know, the other day I had a really good meal, and this is how I felt after that meal, and this is who I think God is. Now, that might be interesting for you, but that's not going to help you get to know God. And so we bring this word here, and the idea is that results in trust and confidence. In verse 1, you find this phrase, assurance of faith. We couldn't read the whole chapter. It's too long. It's a great chapter. But I just had to pick some verses. In verse 1, we read this phrase, assurance of faith. And elsewhere, that word assurance is translated as confidence. It's actually confidence of the believer. So assurance means that you grow in your confidence in God. How do you begin to do that? Well, you've got to connect. Not only to, faith not only connects to the person of God, but the faithfulness of God in your own life. Now, at this point, you might say, I don't believe in God. I don't see how that works. Let me try to help you make it work. Or you're someone that says, right now, I'm not seeing the faithfulness of God in my life. One scholar said this. Faith enables a person to advance courageously and confidently into an unseen future supported only by the work of God. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Faith enables a person to advance courageously and confidently into an unseen future supported only by the work of God. And so what he's saying is there is something critical to you and I connecting to the work of God in our lives and in the world if we're going to be able to move ahead in faith. Now, I took you to a chapter that's called the Hall of Fame of Faith by many people. You know, it's this chapter that lists bunches and bunches of people that had faith. But, you know, I don't think that's a helpful description of that chapter. It's really the Hall of Fame of God's faithfulness to a bunch of normal people. Okay? It's, it's his faithfulness to a bunch of people like you and me. Uh, some of them we know by name. Some of them we don't know by name. And the fact is, God has done enough in every person's life in this room to merit your trust in him. The question is, are you able to see it? He's, he's doing and has done enough in all of our lives to merit our trust in him. But we struggle to see it. Listen to Psalm 145. It's a psalm about the fame of God's abundant goodness to the world. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all 
he has made. That means that every person has tasted something of the mercy of God. It may be a bit of the sunshine. It may be the fact that you ate yesterday. You know, It may be the fact that someone was kind to you you didn't expect. He's always at work. And here's the problem we get into. It may be like Adam and Eve, we make God's goodness and faithfulness about one thing. God had literally given them the entire earth. But there was this one tree. Right? Somehow they got fixed fixated on this one tree and that one tree began to define your goodness to me unless you give me this thing i call into question your kindness to me and we run into that too right maybe unless you give me this relationship i need you give me this job i need you give me this child that i'm praying for and if he doesn't give us that one thing everything else gets blanked out it gets erased but we have to realize god maybe didn't heal you but he fed you Maybe God didn't give you the job, but he gave you a friend. He's always giving. So, first of all, are we connected to the person God, or are we connected to the faithfulness of that person? Second of all, the gracious nature of faith. In verse 3, we're told that God created nothing, and then later we're told about the story of Abraham and Sarah, and there's actually a parallel between the two. If I took you to Romans chapter 4 we would get to hear some of the theology behind the story of Abraham and Sarai. And let me help you see this. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Abraham in hope believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Abraham and Sarai were well advanced in years, didn't have any kids. They wanted kids. God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to give you a kid. They were like, what? You know, we're like in our 90s here. We're, how's this going to happen? So Abraham believed against hope that he should become father of many nations, that he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Therefore, one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars. Now, why did God ultimately do that work? This is why. Why? So that it might be demonstrated that it was by faith and not by works. That's why God ultimately did it. He wanted to show that faith ultimately was about his graciousness. Okay? He's the guy that calls something out of nothing. He is the Lord that takes people. Like Abraham and Sarai's physical condition is illustrative, illustrative of our spiritual condition, you and I. Just like their bodies could not produce good work, couldn't produce a baby, you and I cannot produce enough love to merit God's love. We cannot produce enough justice to merit God's righteousness. We cannot produce enough love for our neighbor. We can do it. We're as good as dead. Ephesians chapter 2 would say that we are spiritually dead in that respect. And so if we come alive and begin to become the people God means us to be, it's because of his grace. If we believe that faith equals our ability to obey or our ability to even believe. I love that quote that you all read with Horatius Bonar, where he said even a little bit of faith, a little bit of weak faith, can attach itself to God. You know, many times uh, Christians can make their faith an idol. It's, if you find yourself always looking at your faith going, is my faith strong enough? What about my faith? You're looking too much at your faith, and you're not looking at the object of the faith who is stronger. Because if this chapter here was based upon those, 
that had believed well enough or lived well enough, there would be nobody in the chapter. I mean, if you sat down and I took you through the names, I mean, Jephthah, what did he do? He sacrificed his daughter, a human sacrifice, out of, out of just a foolish understanding of God's promises about Samson. Samson was a womanizer and a violent man. I mean, you could just go through these names and go, how in the world could these people in here? Rahab, she was a pagan prostitute. And now let's move on to the heroes, shall we? Noah got drunk. David committed adultery and orchestrated, you know, a death. We just go on and on. Peter denies Jesus. Paul is a persecutor. It's only by the grace of God that anybody has any faith. Paul said, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ overflowed upon me. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here's the saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What I'm saying is this. Behind every testimony of great faith is first a testimony of great grace. Behind every testimony of great faith is first a testimony of great grace. If you want to have stronger faith, you need to have a stronger connection of his grace in your life and what he has done. That's where strong faith comes out of. And this is the difficult part about it. Because, you know, you and I in many ways, um, we talk about faith in a way where we would say, maybe you've said this or you've had someone say it to you, I wish I could have faith like you. It would make life easier. Life wouldn't be as hard if I could have faith like you. (laughs) First of all, you can only read chapter 11 and see faith does not make your life easier. In fact, God turns up the heat because all of a sudden he's got some precious metal inside you and he's got to fire up the heat so it burns beautiful. Faith does not make your life easier. But this, we have this idea that I have to muster up faith. I've got to somehow find faith from where it isn't, and I've got to work it into my life. It's completely the wrong idea. The idea of grace is you don't have to muster it up. You've got to lay it down. You don't know sort of work it up. Our problem isn't working it up. We are constantly trying to work it up. We're constantly trying to save ourselves every day. Save ourselves by making a name for ourselves in this city. Save ourselves by trying to manage every part of our lives. Save ourselves by a myriad of things that we try to do. Our problem is not activity. Our problem is our inability to rest upon the grace of God. The hardest thing to do, this is, see, this is the trick. Every other religion and faith is about providing righteousness to God. The Christian faith is about receiving righteousness from God. As the old uh, hymn writers would say, it's about laying your deadly doings down. You see, the trick about it is we think it's really all about me trying to accomplish something for God. The hardest act of faith is to stop trying to save yourself and stop trying to act like you're a Lord of your life. Faith, the gracious nature of faith, gets you true faith. But let's move on to the last two. The willing nature of faith. In verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay? Now, when you hear that, it might be 
your thought is, how can I believe that he exists if I don't believe he exists? <laughs> right? how can I, if I don't have faith, how can I get faith? And what, what the Christian faith is trying to say is, listen, you already have faith. Everybody in this room has faith. Even the person that would say, I am a strict uh, materialist, meaning I only believe in what I see, measure, and quantify. I promise you, if we looked at your life or their life on a daily basis, you do not live just by that. Constantly you're in a position where you're trusting people. You are walking by faith. We all have faith commitments. The idea is this. We need to switch them out. You know, switch out your faith commitment in yourself or maybe in the material world and place that faith commitment on God who made the world. So finding faith isn't so tough. But it gets this idea of trust in the honor and character of God. Why, does it, why is it important that faith pleases God? Why is it important to have faith so we can please God? Well, because faith honors the character of God. Now, there's a lot of little beautiful children in this room. That means there's a lot of... Uh, you know, parents and uh, godparents and, you know, godmothers and godfathers in the Christian community. Let me use this illustration. If, you know, your kid comes up to you or the kid you're babysitting and says, can we go to the playground? And you say yes. And then 10 minutes later they come and say, can we go to the playground? And you say, yes, we can go to the playground. And then five minutes later they come up and say, I thought you said we're going to go to the playground. Can we go to the playground? I said, we'll go to the playground. Two minutes later, does this sound familiar? Two minutes later, you know, they come, and it keeps going on. At some point, you're going to get offended. Because you're going to go, this kid does not trust my integrity, then I'm going to take him to the playground. At some point, trust does equal integrity. And so if you and I don't trust God, it's basically saying something about his character, that he's not faithful. Listen to Psalm 91. My refuge, God is my refuge and my fortress, the one in whom I trust. And then this comes from Joshua, who said, You know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. You and I have to be willing to trust the character of God if we're going to have faith, but we also have to be willing to please God before men. And this is what you see in the character of those in that faith hall of fame, so to speak. Noah was willing to be mocked by his generation because of his trust in God. Abraham was willing to be treated as an outsider. You know, his mannerisms, his accent, his clothes, people would have looked sideways at him. He was a foreigner in that culture. He was willing to go through that to leave and follow God. Moses was willing to leave the comfort of Pharaoh's house and to be called the son of Pharaoh. Oh man, I'll tell you something. There are so many times I want to be called the son of DC. Whatever, you know, this city values and praises and, you know, claps their hands and celebrates, I want to be a son of that. Pharaoh was, Moses said, no, I'm going to pull back. I'd rather be a son of the father. Moses is willing to endure racial prejudice for the wife that he marries, Numbers 12. Esther's willing to endure her own life, right? Risk her own life for the sake of God's people. One of the things that hurts our faith is our people-pleasing, our lust for approval. Uh, we can't, on one hand, be wanting to be sons and daughters 
of the world and be praised and lifted up, and at the same time being pleasing to God. They're two different motives, two different things. And at the end of chapter 11, the story goes on to say there were those that were beaten, those that were imprisoned, and I love the fact we're not given the names because it's just, you know, representing the saints. Those who were in prison, those that wandered around in caves, and it says in God's eyes the world wasn't worthy of these people. And this isn't unique to great saints or old saints. It's unique to all saints. Everybody that believes in God, Paul says, that anybody that wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus made it, made it sure in his list of happiness, the Beatitudes. I'll tell you, if you want to compare your definition of happiness to Jesus, go to the Beatitudes. Happy is the one who was persecuted for my sake, right? And so this has always been a mark. It is a mark of the bloodline of those that decide and follow Jesus. The family tree is the cross, right? This is where it all begins, the birth. Now, an old preacher, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, wrote a great little quote on this, and he said, it really is the riddle of providence. Listen to this. When our Lord was upon the earth, although he is the prince of the kings of the earth, yet he walked the footpath of weariness and service as the servant of servants. What wonder is it if his followers should also be looked down upon as inferior and contemptible? The world is upside down, the first or last and the last first. Haman is in the court while Mordecai sits in the gate. David wanders on the mountains while Saul reigns in state. Elijah is complaining in the cave while Jezebel is boasting in the palace. Yet when the wheel turns, those who are lowest rise and the highest sink. Patience then, believer, eternity will right the wrongs of time. Let us not fall into the error of letting our carnal appetites ride in triumph while our nobler powers walk in the dust. Grace must reign as a prince. That's the call of those that walk in faith. Uh, it's a challenge. You have to see how he looks at you. Lastly, to close, the waiting nature of faith. You all have been in the book of Genesis. And last night, I, I was at a party, and uh, one of the uh, sisters in our community, sister in the church, said, I've been reading the book of Genesis. And you know what? I think so much of it tells the story of waiting. I mean, there's just like a ton of waiting. I can't stand waiting for like a day right? Like 40, 50, 60, 100 years waiting and waiting. And the other theme you see is when people get tired of waiting, they come up with their own plan and it always backfires, right? You guys have been learning that, I'm sure. You go, one day, I'm tired of waiting, I'm taking this in my own hands, and that's just like everything falls apart at that point. I want you to notice that all of these heroes died waiting. They all died waiting for something. And that means if you should choose to follow Christ, you will die waiting for things. Sometimes there's a dangerous theology that will teach you, have to wait a little bit, and then you'll get everything you want, and then you'll sort of cruise out of the end. No. Well, that's true if this is your heaven. If you want heaven now, okay. But if you're looking for something greater, a better country, as the book of Hebrews said, then you're going to die waiting. You're going to die longing. The dream relationship, the dream job, the dream kids, the dream house, is a dream. It'll never satisfy you and I. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
but having seen them and greeted them from afar. But as, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The nature of secularism is this. It's here and now. That's the nature of it. I live for here and now and what I see. But the nature of faith, it can see beyond that. Tim Keller said this, Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled about what you believe about your future. Now that's even true in a micro you know, way here now, but it's ultimately true. We're hope-shaped creatures. What we believe about then is what gets us going and drives us now. That means we've got to relook at our bucket list. You know, we all have these bucket lists. We all have these wish lists. I've got this little list in my head. Anytime we get a little extra money, I don't have to ask the question where that's going to go. You know, if it's not going to needs and the leaky roof we have or this and that, in my mind, you know, I'm like, here's the list. I think I'd like to have this. I think I'd like to have that. It's that bucket list. And what happens is when God brings us into this place where we begin to see that better country, this is what happens. You've seen too much. You've tasted something that's too good. <laughs> You've tasted God's grace. You've seen this picture of what he's called us to. So it's not enough anymore. The biggest bucket ain't enough. The best life ain't enough. Whatever could be ain't enough. Because faith is showing you something that's beyond what the world can offer you. And so, as we think about belief and unbelief, I'd urge you to think about these four things. How are you thinking about faith? How is your faith doing in light of those? Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, that you um, are attracted to needy people. We thank you so much that uh, you are not um, impressed by what we would boast to do, uh, though you are impressed by simple trust in you. I pray you would help us, Lord. I pray for those here that feel very weak in their faith, that whatever faith they have, they would begin to lay it on you. Uh, for those that are feeling strong in their faith, I pray that they would push along the right road. I pray, Lord, for our faith this morning. In the name of your faithful one, Christ. Amen.